So much of what became Nazi science was born out of colonial imperial experiments. After Germany lost its colonies, there was an entire landscape of of tropical medicine, tropical scientists, and all of the science that had been kind of cultivated to justify imperial administration that got folded into the Weimar and the Nazi scientific apparatus. So there is so much of Nazism informed by the genocide. And I was like, I want to learn about this originary scientific structure. And there are a lot of people who were experimenting on Black folks in Africa that ended up also being Nazis unsurprisingly. I learned a lot about the kind of intimate scientific relationships between anti-Blackness and anti-Semitism and the kind of politics around anti-miscegenation, the concentration camp as the scientific technology. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, And I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This is season four, episode 11, the final episode of the season. Before I continue, I want to let you know that this is my last episode with the podcast. The late Black feminist Bell Hooks noted, To be truly visionary, we have to root our imagination in our concrete reality while simultaneously imagining possibilities beyond that reality. While my spirit and activism has sharpened throughout this podcast journey, I hope to continue to imagine and grow and put into action those concrete realities through my writing, through essays, and through the two book projects that I have in fruition. Captive Contagions, a nonfiction book about epidemics and confinement with One Signal Press and Tending to Our Wounds, a historical memoir that explores Reparations and Racial Repair with Haymarket Books. This last episode was recorded during my fellowship at the Carmargo Foundation in Cassi, France, during the fall of 2021. I spoke with Zoe Zamutsi, who is a Zimbabwean-American writer. Her work has appeared in The New Inquiry, Verso, The New Republic, Daily Beast, Art in America, Hypoallergic, and other outlets. She's a contributing writer at Jewish Currents, and along with William C. Anderson, she co-authored Black as Resistance, Finding the Conditions for Liberation through AK Press. Zoe Zedmuzzi was a 2017 Public Imagination Fellow at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts and holds a PhD from the University of California, San Francisco. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about yourself and what is your intellectual journey and how did you become a scholar? Um, How did I become a scholar? I mean, like a lot of people, I had two parents that had PhDs. And so it's not as though I, there was a hundred percent of an expectation, but I think that they very gently guided me in that direction. I think at one point I wanted to be like a journalist and then I wanted to be a vet And then I think when I got to, um, by the time I started undergrad, I had done Model UN, so I really wanted to do diplomacy. And I studied political science and international relations, and I studied Arabic. And then I learned more about Palestine, and I was like, okay, I don't know if that's going to work with the politics that I have. 
And then um, when I did my master's, I wanted to do human rights and I ended up in this kind of critical development program uh, that was very human rights centered, but also very critical of human rights as an international structure. And my project was about trans women who were doing sex work in Cape Town. And I realized that I actually love reading and writing in school and things. And I just hated the American school system. Um, and so I applied for a PhD. I was really interested in medicine, but not epidemiology. And so someone told me about a medical sociology program. And so I ended up getting my PhD from there. One thing that I wanted to ask a little bit about is you know, your activism, because you co-wrote a book, Black as a Resistance, which called for type of politics for Black Americans and specifically thinking actively about anti-fascism and how that's part of the Black radical tradition. And in a way that's so important to delve into and to think about when we think about how anti-fascist movements have taken on popularity, especially within the rise of Trump and Trumpism in the United States, with the rise of far-right movements in Europe, where I live, in Germany, and Hungary, and etc. And so often what is missing from the, the discussion about Antifa or anti-fascist movements is the role that Black people have played. And I wanted to get a, a sense of how you decided to write, not just write about it, but how you see and embody anti-fascist work by Black people as an integral part of your, your praxis. Yeah, I mean, it all came out of an essay that William and I wrote together. And, you know, I love his work. I love his ideas. I think he's really sharp and really thoughtful. Um, and we had been talking about wanting to collab for years. So we finally wrote this essay together. And then AK Press asked us if we wanted to write a book. And I was like, I'll only write a book if he wants to write a book. And, you know, as we were talking, it was a really great opportunity for me to really think about my understanding of kind of anti-authoritarian and anti-state politics, because I, in a, in, a, in a weird way, there is often this way that anti-authoritarian politics like don't have any kind of racial element to them. There's this understanding of fascism or of state violence where, you know, you can talk about the police and you can talk about all of these elements um, of carcerality that are, uh, you know, bearing down on you, but there's not this real understanding of like, you know, something that scores of writers have talked about how fascism was born out of imperialism, right? How we saw Mussolini in Italy, like fancying himself as like a new Roman empire or, you know, Nazism fancying themselves as a new Reich and um, drawing on tactics and ideologies that were first um, articulated in its colonies um, on the African continent. And um, so thinking with William about like, in the United States specifically, what is the foundation of the state? What is the foundation of state violence? In addition to indigenous genocide and dispossession, obviously it's anti-blackness. And it's like, this is how we, how the border is understood or is understood and, and enforced, right? Like you were talking about with in your piece about the violence that we see or have seen against, you know, Haitian migrants. And so writing the book with him, I think was really formative in, in me really thinking about not only how has the state kind of materialized in its violence against black people, but also like what is the international 
the transnational, trans-imperial cooperation, right? Like Brexit didn't happen in a nutshell. You saw Brexit and you saw Bolsonaro and Trump and Cambridge Analytica doing all of these things and Duterte all at the same time because there are these international networks of, of ideologies and movements and symbols. And I think that that book did a lot for me as far as, as really growing my understanding of how it all worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's something that I will continue to learn and see how it works, you know? Yeah, and I think that the learning and unlearning, reading and rereading is something that I'm trying to actively sit with, especially as I'm trying to, for myself as well, like theorize and and also put into practice how we can think about global Blackness within an intellectual tradition that is constantly evolving, that's speaking to each other. Like I spent part of the summer just like rereading Fred Moten and reading Frank Wilderson and Orlando Patterson and just really thinking about what does it also mean as a Black subject that navigates and moves within what is often called the global north, how there's a there's this also violence that happens just by being present, the gaze, the, the commentary, the, the sense that your body can be disposable and how do you like reckon yeah. with that and, yeah. and figuring out, well, act, there are activists who've been trying to figure, you know, work through that in so many different ways. Like here in Kasi, where I am, not too far away from Marseille, Claude McKay, who was part of a Black socialist, Harlem, Jamaican poet, like all kinds of things. Uh, he was also like a, like part of the second international. And there's a transnationalism that was so essential to the Black radical tradition. And I think what's important about your book and also like these discussions, it's like, well, we exist in these movements and yet we often get erased from them. And, and also as, you know, a Zimbabwean diasporan, it's, 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 it's really important to think about like what were all of the kind of iterations of partisan politics, of anti-colonial movements, of socialist communist movements that were happening on the continent because it feels often like Africa is such a kind of rhetorical staple in so many conversations about leftism or, or kind of international solidarity, but there is such a lack of engagement with kind of these histories and these movements and these figures kind of beyond the cursory patriotic histories of independence movements, right? So it's like, we know Biko, we love Biko, we love all of these folks of a certain generation. And so, you know, who were the other actors and what has what has been happening in the kind of post-colonial moments, right? Like who came after Biko? Who is writing in kind of Biko's legacy? Like there's this really great book by, um, this, this scholar, I think he's at UNISA, uh, Tendai Sitole, which is called the Black Register. And it's like this real deep engagement of like Afro-pessimism and Black study and thinking about it in the kind of apartheid, post-apartheid context. And he's putting Biko alongside Moten and, and thinking about kind of Ubuntu philosophy and Marikana of, in, in the context of like bear life. And that to me was really exciting to, to think about like there are uh, international, transnational implications for thinking about anti-Blackness. And it's really, it's a challenge to think about anti-Blackness on the African continent because it's thinking about like the legacy, a challenge not in that it's impossible or that it's difficult, but the kind of 
the contours of, of some of the work can get is, is interesting because you're thinking about like the legacies and afterlives of colonialism. You're thinking about how national leaders are colluding um, and permitting internet, um, these, these big kind of transnational corporations to steal resources, to expand AFRICOM and run training exercises with their militaries and police officers to, you know, who are doing these kind of sweeps on townships and amongst informal settle, um, not informal settlements, informal settlements, yes, but um, like workers in informal economies. And so there are all of these different structures and materialities. And that's a lot of what I'm thinking about in my dissertation, um, in the manuscript that I'm hoping to turn my dissertation into, um, just really trying to be as kind of keyed into materialities and not simply thinking about struggles and people and poverty and, and imperialism in an abstract sense, because it's not abstract. Absolutely. And we have a role to win if we make our scholarship as capacious as the people who we talk about. And speaking of scholarship, congratulations on being a doctor. (laughs) You've completed your PhD uh, at UC San Francisco, where you study German colonialism and the Herero and Namaqua uh, genocide, especially its relation to the role of science in thinking about uh, indigeneity and, and Black identity. And I wanted to get a sense of what it meant to do that research and what you learned from it that you didn't necessarily think you'd discover during that process. So I, I started out by, you know, kind of my second-ish, first-ish year of my PhD. I was like, actually, this is going to be probably one of the last times that I ever get money to just learn something new. So I was really interested in obviously this isn't new, but I I was like, I'm interested in kind of Nazi science, quote unquote, like what, how do we and why do we understand Nazi science as being this kind of anomaly or being unique, apart from the kind of scale of the genocidal project, like what was particular to Nazi science. And as I was reading about Nazi science and the kind of genealogy of German eugenics, that was when I learned about the genocide. And I didn't, had never really heard about Germany as a colonial power, much less the fact that there was a whole other genocide that they had committed and that they were either kind of actively denying or implicitly denying. And so I studied, I started reading about it and I started thinking about, again, because we think about things in the abstract, right? We're always just like America taught Germany eugenics. And it's like, that's absolutely not true there were American corporations that like funded the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute and kind of other racial science or racial hygiene projects. But so much of what became Nazi science was born out of um, colonial imperial experiments. After Germany lost its colonies, there was an entire landscape of, of tropical medicine, tropical scientists and all of all of the science that had been kind of cultivated to justify imperial administration that got folded into the Weimar and the Nazi scientific apparatus. So there's so much of Nazism informed by the genocide. And I was like, I want to learn about this originary scientific structure. And there are a lot of people who were experimenting on black folks in Africa that ended up also being Nazis, unsurprisingly. Um, I learned a lot about the kind of 
intimate scientific relationships between anti-blackness and anti-Semitism and um, the kind of politics around anti-miscegenation, um, the concentration camp as this scientific technology. And then it was really wild going to Namibia because Germany didn't have colonies for very long. Like Germany was had colonies from what, 1884 to 1914. In the CB, in the central business district in the capital in Vintuk, like the streets are in German. So a lot of these like main streets, you have like one of the main roads is like Robert Mugabe Avenue. <laughs> um, but then you have like Goethestrasse and like all of these different German names in the city center. And you have a really deep politic of monuments, but monuments to German imperialism. Like it was only in the 2010s that this huge equestrian statue that was on one of the main roads got taken down and put inside of Alta Festa, which is the kind of remnants of, um, of the fort where the Schutztrupp were. So I was really stunned to see such a pronounced German presence in Namibia, despite the fact that it had been a part of kind of apartheid South Africa since it was annexed by British South Africa in like 1915, 1916. And which makes the kind of politic of German denialism, especially when you think about how Germany is being put on this pedestal for how it allegedly apologized and paid out reparations to, to German Jews after the Holocaust. It's just like, it. first of all, the payment after World War II was a mess. But also when you see it, it's, I don't know, I learned, I learned a lot about memory and, and the kind of mythologies of memory and, um, and how the memory project that's being expressed from Germany is very different from the Namibian government, which is then very different from the politics that are coming from the survivor communities themselves. I'll oh, sorry, I'll stop, I'll stop rambling, but it's a lot. There's a lot. And, and I'm only still really um, excavating it. I think one of the things that I, as someone who moved to Berlin four years ago and is living in Berlin, I was not taught about German colonialism on the African continent in my primary or secondary education. And that's something I learned as an adult. And beyond that, there's a way that one could say um, kind of like that, oh, well, German colonialism lasted for such a short period of time, which you know, it did it, compared to the British presence on the African continent, the French presence, et cetera. Nevertheless, commercial relations still maintain themselves. And if we think about even today, who owns certain profitable commercial land in Namibia, it's often people of German descent. So if we're to understand what the, the afterlives of colonialism looks like, even if a, a country may not necessarily be formally present and is as occupying and settling, there are still these economic relationships that perpetuate these power dynamics whereby, yeah, it's officially over, but like you said, the structures are still there, the street names are still there, um, and, and there was never a formal, well, actually, no, they did <laughs> apologize, but in terms of actual repair and restitution. They, like, kind of apologized. <laughs> but that, so it's like they made, the, they made that big deal about, the, about recognizing the genocide yes, in May-ish. Yeah. But then there was a lawsuit the previous year where Overhero and Nama people were, like, suing the German government, and the German government was in court saying that the genocide didn't happen. Yeah. So it's like, is it one mic or is it Uchiwali? Like, 
<laughs> did you do the genocide or did you not do the genocide? I see these really interesting slippages between like law and history because the historical consensus is that there's a genocide, but there has never been a legal ruling. And so there is no obligation to do anything. Well, that's cynical. <laughs> yeah. And, but you bring it to question too, which you alluded that in the context of World War II and the genocide that happened um, in, in Europe, that the, the restitution wasn't quite what it needed to be. And in a way, the legal, the legal framework has its limitations as to what is possible. And so in this, and this relates to the podcast, which is like, how do we actually think about decoloniality in a proactive manner that doesn't just give more of the same and legitimize a system that by design is meant to preserve capital, nation states, a certain power dynamic already. And, you know, on the one hand, of course, we need apologies, we need reimagination, we need rethinking, but there haven't necessarily been in practice any, in my opinion, any successful models that have actually addressed the traumas, the pain, the torture, the, geno- the genocides that have happened. And so I, I wonder, do you have any theories <laughs> on what that would look like? Or do we have to do that, that work from the people who were directly impacted and continue to be impacted by the, the aftermath and the afterlives of colonization? Yeah. I mean, in, in kind of thinking... And, and reading things that Ova Herrero uh, community organizations and NAMA community organizations have written, there's a few things going on. And so obviously there are often analogies made to the reparations that, that the German government paid to German Jews after World War II, because that's what they understand as being the time that Germany was like, this is a thing that we did. And so here are you know this kind of financial recompense, which like I get, right? And at the same time, they are articulating like a much more ambitious understanding of of restorative justice. Like what they are expressing is, you know, they're calling for the Namibian government to do an audit of land ownership because they're saying that their present state of landlessness and dispossession was initiated by German imperialism. And because, as you said earlier, so much of the kind of commercial uh, viable kind of agricultural land is owned by white Namibians, particularly German speaking uh, Namibians who often have dual citizenship with Germany. They're like, we, we need to figure out how we get our land back. And so what they're articulating as a reparation is their own indigenous self-determination, which I think is incredibly powerful. Um, and I think really gets at the way that the Namibian government has completely excised them from the negotiations and has has prevented them from voicing their demands because the Namibian government is worried about that compromising the kind of historic relationship that Namibia has with Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this real like appropriation um, of the legacy of imperialism, of the story of colonization um, that justifies the Namibian state's kind of bilateral negotiations. And I, it's, it's like, if there's anything that kind of demonstrates the investment that nation states have in indigenous uh, dispossession, like it's that, that cynical move. Um, I have no ideas 
all the ideas that I have are just being derived from the community members and kind of the the different suggestions and the different articulations of politics about the state, about uh, political parties and representation, about their own histories, about the ways that the testimonies that they make and the personal stories that they tell about, you know, having to ask these white Germans to bury their family members on their ancestral land. And sometimes people say no, you know, it's, it's about talking about like, you know, some of these graves were dug up. And so human remains were taken from concentration camps. So there's this idea that as long as these bones are still in the archives, like these people haven't been interred. So the genocide is still ongoing, like the dispossession and the incarcerations are still going on. And so there's this whole, there's this way that like, you know, indigenous like metaphysics is really structuring the way that they understand and the way that they interact with these kind of imperial modes of knowing time and of, of understanding knowledge and death. There's nothing interesting that I have to say. The issue is that they are just not understood as being reliable narrators. They are not understood as having a clear knowledge of the law or of history or of time or of the importance of museums and public institutions or the necessity for nation states to speak on their behalves. They're not seen as legitimate victims, as legitimate witnesses. One thing I want to ask you about, and this relates to this topic, is an article you wrote last or several months ago during the summer in July 2021 for Art Forum called Looking After, where you explore the relationship between museums and human remains. And part of what I loved about the article is that you were making connection of two very horrific acts, which is within the context of the U.S., the discovery or the admission by the University of Pennsylvania that they had human remains from the charred rubble of Black people who had been bombed by the U.S. government in May 1985, which is often known as the MOVE um, bombing in West Philadelphia. Uh, and that controversy around their remains and highlighting in that same article that there were construction workers who discovered human remains in a pit near Fry Universität in Berlin in 2014 and human fragments there and trying to work through that because obviously two different countries, Germany and the U.S., very different histories and how they dealt with that they deal with and have been dealing with the Black and the Jewish question, uh, respectively. And I just wanted to get a sense of like, well, moving away from the African continent towards how we deal with these remains for people who are coexisting, but also dealing with ongoing traumas by these states, how you came to marry these two traumas in this article. When I was reading about the move, the, the discovery of the move bombings and the admissions of these offices that like they were supposed to have disposed of them, but they didn't actually dispose of them. And they like found them in the basement of some somewhere. And the families had no idea that the bones were still a thing. They thought that they had been destroyed. I think what was so striking to me is just like the utter kind of disregard for the living family. And I think that that's what was also striking about the discovery of the remains on the campus is that the, there were people who didn't know about the kind of history of that specific site and its participation in kind of hygiene science and eugenics, but 
there were people who did know. And the people who did know didn't prevent the bones from being destroyed. Like they didn't advocate for identification for all of the, the good PR that Germany gets about its reckonings and its vulnerabilities and, and kind of talking about Nazi fascism. It was really stunning how there was this institutional move to just kind of quickly, quietly dispose as, as much as possible and to block investigations from happening. And I think what brings them both together is this institutional complicity, whether it's, you know, anti-Blackness um, or, or it's, you know, Germany, not just the anti-Semitism, but also Germany's unwillingness to think about anti-Semitism beyond Nazism, beyond the atonement for this moment in German history that is understood as being an anomaly and outside of the realm of German, the kind of regular German statecraft or, or beyond the the fold of like biopolitical possibility in the future to just think of these, you know, 1933 to 45 as being this moment of national insanity that will never happen again. And, and here now you're confronted with material evidence, you know, continuing, continuously con being confronted by material evidence of, of these crimes of the scale and just refusing to do anything with it. That's what really brought it all together for me. And yeah, and I, I think also the German elections just happened in September. And one of the things that kept being repeated is the sense that the German establishment is very much committed to con consensus model. Who's going to align with who? Who's going to be the chancellor? That can come at um, a disservice because it might end up being in some cases, I don't think this is going to happen this time around, that people might align to people like a government might be further to the right than what the voters or the constituents might have wanted. And yeah, that's another issue. And it doesn't quite relate to your work, but I'm, I'm living through it, which is why. No, no, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's prescient. And I think from what I understand about German memory culture, there's a real willingness to kind of pretend to engage in certain issues and put certain issues on a particular pedestal and other things that simply don't need to be talked about ever again. Well, absolutely. And I think what is what I, what I do think is exciting in this moment is that there are heaps of active groups that are addressing and contesting provenance and figuring out what restitution might look like, challenging various institutions that hold ethnological collections, and, and really thinking actively what anti-racism and decolonization might look like. Because for some, that might mean the complete abolition of museums as we understand them, and really working through that. And I think that makes some institutions anxious, but at least there's that conversation from activists to really yeah. envision abolition of in a full sense and yeah. you know obviously abolition for the police amazing but abolition from the intellectual and you know cultural institutions they have stolen so much and profit from the stolen goods from the african continent latin america the caribbean the and all over the world yeah. <laughs> so like the, this this active remaking of what these spaces might look like or in many cases they might not exist is part of what is happening today which is great. <laughs> yeah. And then Germany said, you know, hold my beer. Let's rebuild. Here's the Humboldt Forum. 
Uh-huh. I was like, what? <laughs> Girl, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, let's, how about we put our ethnological collections in a palace? Yeah. Yeah. It's, and in a way, it's like, it's like, well, what is it? Make Germany great again? Make Germany into the 19th century formation that it had? I, it's, it's, it's quite confusing for me. But so one thing I wanted to ask about a bit is your artistic or curatorial practice and editorial vision. You recently were a guest editor for Phenambulist, in which that particular editorial spread focused on genocide. Can you talk a little bit about why that topic as an entry point for a magazine that's very much concerned about space and architecture and how did that experience help to solidify and reify the work that you have been doing not just for your dissertation but since your PhD was completed? I'm a huge fan of The Phenambulist and so when I was asked to guest edit I was like over the moon I'm really grateful for Leopold's work and and all of the kind of things that I've learned from reading the magazine over the years. And the reason that I, you know, beyond, unfortunately, this like hyper fixation on kind of genocide politics, but the reason I was interested in, in it as an issue is because it's not that I think that the concept is not useful, but I think that the idea and the way that we've come to understand genocide, the way that it has been kind of codified and structured by human rights discourses leaves a lot to be desired. And I was really interested in in trying to think about kind of mass violences that would not necessarily exist within the genocide canon, but that could arguably be understood as genocides Mm. um, or are genocide, but the kind of narrative around it is a lot more kind of complicated than the way that we're talking about it. So one of the things that I was really, that was really important for me um, obviously is what's going on in Tigray. And I, you know, was really grateful that Khadija and Ayantu, you know, wrote the piece uh, for the issue. And instead of just kind of talking about Tigray and what was going on there, they really elegantly laid out this whole kind of national mythology around Ethiopia and kind of Pan-Africanism and how we understand the Ethiopian state as this kind of haven for like black freedom dreams or whatever, but in actuality, it was a state that was created through kind of imperial formations um, and kind of regional antagonisms. And so they were writing about Tigray and Oromia and kind of multi-ethnic federalism and through this history of Ethiopia and through kind of busting the myths about Ethiopia, it really kind of clarifies the relationship between the violence happening in Tigray, the genocidal violence happening in Tigray and why it's happening and why the Ethiopian state has this antagonistic relationship with TPLF, with the party, the the kind of main party in Tigray. So I was incredibly grateful for that. Um, I was also really grateful and because, you know, I love photography. I write about photography as much as I can. Writing about photography has been so clarifying in understanding science for me. Um, I was really grateful to have Nazak Armanakian, who is an incredible photojournalist from Armenia that I had the real honor of meeting in 2019 um, when I went to Armenia. 
uh, to Yerevan, um, incidentally, to do to kind of think about and kind of write through what it means when a nation state identity is kind of formed around genocide survivorship. And she has these incredible photographs from Artsakh, which was the kind of site of, or has been an ongoing site of land contestations for um, a couple of for a couple of decades now. And you know the way that she photographs destruction that happened this past in 2020 against kind of previous iterations of conflict really kind of shows the kind of enduring nature of genocide because so many Armenians, you know, in watching the, the war, the, the war in Isaac in 2020 and uh, here and, 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 and Azerbaijan was supported by Turkey and, and it, they were just like, this is like a continuation of the Ottoman genocide and of the Ottoman attempts to purge Armenians from their land. And so that was for me, a really important consideration of time and land and indigeneity. So obviously if we were to try to do something comprehensive about genocide, it would be an unending issue and it would go on forever. And I hope to do more projects like this, but, and, and I think space is such an important issue because all so many of these conflicts are about land, right? Are about some claim to indigeneity, about some claim to ownership and an eradication of whatever some power understands as the obstacles to that claim. For like, obviously that's not the only reason, but mm -hmm. it's one that continues to be visible. And that's so, certainly the logic of, of colonial genocides. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and that we see how that lives on today in North America, Central America, South America, New Zealand, Australia, so and so forth, that yeah. as you say, land is so integral for how we understand and think about different forms of genocide and can be a way for us to really unpack why, why they happen, how they happen, how people resisted it, and hopefully how yeah. we can, what we can do to avoid it. Because that, that would be the, I would not want to live in a world where this continues. And no. um, hopefully we can no. figure that out as well. And I think if anything kind of strengthens my understanding as like a person who opposes nation states is it's like, like I, like I said before with the Overhero and Nama, like there's no real indigenous self-determination, no kind of full decolonization as long as states are able to impose and enforce borders over indigenous nations and govern or kind of exist as this kind of super sovereign entity that is able to kind of place dictates and regulations on and around indigenous self-determination and sovereignty. And that's something that kind of learning about many of these different violences, you know, kind of both in the present and, and historically, that's, that's something that was really solidified in my mind. I want to ask two final questions. The first one being, what was the last book that you read and how has that been informing your thinking? I have unfortunately a very bad habit of reading just a whole bunch of books at the same time. So if I can twist your question a little <laughs> bit and say the book that has really shifted a lot and has been really kind of pushing me on a lot of different levels, um, a book that I keep coming back to is Elaine Scarry's The Body in Pain. Mm -hmm. It's really elegantly written. 
and also the way that she talks about violence and the way that she talks about pain as this experience that just mutes and gags and 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 really transforms our relationship to language our relationship to selfhood to one another um I, I think that book is, it's absolutely tremendous. It's, it's been, I've, I started, I, it's been fucking with me for a year now. And I go back to it because she talks about like commensurability and how the, in, in the, the articulation and the sharing of pain is this kind of like incommensurability that like language cannot carry. And I'm just like, okay, so in the absence of language in my own praxis, how can I express or communicate her book is 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 phenomenal I read that book in grad school and I I agree with you it's it's quite phenomenal I think one of the things that it did for me as someone who suffers from chronic pain is to realize that my inability to articulate what my pain act like feels (laughs) the inexpressibility is it a product of me somehow lacking the tools but that it's just not possible (laughs) it's not possible to fully convey it and I think even beyond that and one of your articles has looked at this it's just like what does it mean for black bodies not to be perceived as being something that can experience pain and how the pain in our bodies is just normal like people normalize it there's a really excellent book by Keith Waylu on the history of pain as well that like looks at that from the issue of, of race and racism but also just because it's like Elaine is doing the work on this like philosophical macro level but then there's also like major implications for how that plays out in medical settings where some people's 100%. pains, even as much as they can try to like get to that point of uh, describing uh, on, a, on a scale, it doesn't get taken. It just doesn't get taken seriously. You're drug seeking or you're exaggerating yeah. or you're whatever else. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the final question, and I like to ask this because why not, (laughs) is what is bringing you joy in this moment, especially as we're dealing with unpacking, living through a pandemic that is just becoming the way of life? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm living in my like first apartment. And so I've I'm just like making it as cozy as possible, but I've learned that even though not every experimentation is the best, um, I love cooking for myself and I love learning and trying new things. Like I just got a slow cooker. So I'm about to hit my stew game really hard when it gets cold. And so when I don't work too late, which is most nights, like I'm trying to be very good about that. I'll like put on my silky robe and like put on a great record and cook myself like a really nice hearty dinner. Um, And so it's like, yeah, my apartment will smell like aromatics for the night. And it's, it's like a great sensory experience. And um, I've been really loving that. Um, I've really, really been loving it. That's great to hear. Well, this was such a lovely conversation and I'm really happy that you were able to make it to the final episode 
of so the, glad for the invite thank yeah, you yeah the season and it's also my last episode period <laughs> so I'm oh my gosh that, yeah this will be my last episode um Christina will continue but I will not because <laughs> I need to focus on other projects so um it was as a person that is doing all of the things that you are doing you know yeah. that you also had a podcast on top of all the things you do it's just oof I know that we're out here being like Beyonce doesn't have the same 24 hours in a day. And I'm just like, Anna does not have the same 24 hours in a day either. <laughs> just like, I truly don't understand yeah. how they're doing it. Thank you for coming okay. on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. My name is Edna Bonhomme and you're listening to the Decolonization Action Podcast. This episode featured digitally based voices in North America and Europe. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes The late African-American writer James Baldwin once wrote, If you know whence you came, there is really no limit to where you can go. It has been a pleasure getting to grow and learn from the insightful scholars, artists, and activists that I've interviewed during the past four seasons of this podcast. You have pushed me to ask pressing questions about the world we live in, while also working collectively to unpack what decolonization means. This podcast has given me the tools to hone in on historical injustices, but also thinking about and finding the strength to imagine how we can all live in a better place. Given that this is my last episode with the Decolonization in Action podcast, you can get updates from me from my website, www.ednabunom.com or on Twitter at Jacobo Noir, J-A-C-O-B-I-N-O-I-R-E, or from my Substack newsletter, Mobile Fragments. Thank you for listening, and may you hold fast to your dreams.